0: This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Turzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest
1: and I'm Peter Turzakkian.
0: We have talked about Canada quite a bit lately on the podcast, so we want to move about 3,000 kilometers south to talk about the mighty Permian Basin in West Texas.
1: Yeah, the Permian is where the bulk of the U.S. oil production growth has come from. It's staggering, and we're going to talk about that. But, Jackie, you put on your Stetson and your cowboy boots and went down to West Texas and checked it out on the ground.
0: I did. I was there in uh, March. wasn't even... uh, cowboy boots. You know, I had to put on my work boots. I actually had to get some new work boots to go down there. So yeah, I bought those and went down there and I want to talk about what I learned.
1: Yeah. So you jumped in your pickup truck, you landed in Dallas, Houston, and then you went west all the way to Midland?
0: I flew into Midland. You flew um, directly into Midland. Yeah. And Midland uh, Airport is near the center of the Permian Basin. There's two major cities. One is called Midland and one is called Odessa. That's also almost in the center of the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin has Two major oil-producing sub-basins, the Midland Basin to the east and the Delaware Basin to the west.
1: Okay, so these are the basins. But give, give, give our listeners a visual. Like, what is the landscape like around there? Is it forest? Is it desert? Is it what, what, What's on the ground?
0: Well, you definitely know you've arrived in oil country as you arrive there was actually a few active drilling rigs within sight of the airport and nodding pump jacks pretty much as far as the eye could see quite densely put together. So, yeah. you know, I definitely know I was in oil country. It is like desert, very dry with the odd little scrub bush and very little productive right. use for the land, actually. So you can see the wells and the drilling rigs for miles in the distance because it's just flat as a pancake.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the production from this area, I mean, this has been oil country for well over a century, and it's seen a real renaissance with the advent of the new resource play technologies, horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, and so on. So we want to talk about the production growth that has happened in that area, which is just absolutely remarkable. I mean, this was an area... I remember, oh, certainly, I don't know, more than half a dozen years ago, not that long ago, we would be modeling in our spreadsheets as on a very gentle decline. Uh, And we thought that after a century it was over, but it's just seen such a renaissance.
0: Well, and, you know, if you go back in time, the first old discoveries were back in the 1920s, actually, in the area. And the oil production peaked at about 700,000 barrels a day in the mid-1970s. And then it was on the decline Mm -hmm. because we had that period from the 80s, 90s where the oil price didn't really support economic development. So we saw production decline. Things started to get going again when we got into the $100 oil world where it started to make sense to punch vertical wells into the Permian. But things really took off when the unconventional development came, and that was probably more in the 2016 when you started to see the exponential growth. And today, it's pretty incredible. The IEA is expecting about 4.2 million barrels a day to be produced from the Permian in April this month about a million more than last year. And like this is the king of U.S. oil production. To put it in perspective, some of the other shale oil plays, like the Eagleford, is 1.4 million in terms of its production. The Bakken, 1.5 million. The Scoop Stack, 0.6. So, you know, the vast majority of this light, title oil Whoa. production is now coming from the Permian, which didn't even exist several years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the context here is so important because it's so staggering. A million barrels per day incremental just in one year, that's like— adding 1% to the global oil production mix of 100 million barrels per day. It's just staggering. But more staggering, I'm looking at this chart here that we have, and we'll we'll put it up on on our site. The area in the span of, I don't know, I'm just going to call it 10 years, has really added, what, 3 to 4 million barrels per day? Yeah, 3 million. Uh, Probably
0: 4 maybe by the end of this year.
1: The amount added in less than a decade exceeds the entire oil output of Western Canada, which is about what? We're
0: about 4.5 million barrels a day. They're at 4.2 now, but I'm sure by the end of the year. Texas
1: uh, Permian added the entire amount of Western Canadian output in less than a decade. It's just absolutely staggering. It's it's taken us in Canada, and we're, by the way, the fifth largest producer of oil and gas in the world – it's taken us over 100 years to get to that level. And here, Texas did it in like half a dozen years.
0: Yeah, I mean, really, the chart is phenomenal. There will be a link to a blog that's posted with some pictures of my trip as well as this chart of the historical Mm -hmm. production. But it is like a hockey stick, hard to believe. And, of course, it's changing the rules of the oil market. Just to put in perspective, you know, the the growth from the Permian has propelled the U.S. production now to be about 11.9 million barrels a day currently. More than Saudi, which is producing less than 10 million barrels a day with the curtailments that they're doing, and Russia, which is under 11 million barrels a day because of the curtailment. So the United States is the world's largest oil producer. Like, you know, five, six years ago, if I had said that's going to happen, a lot of people wouldn't have believed it.
1: Yeah, between what's happening here in Texas and what's happened with shale gas in the United States, I mean, it's no wonder that the narrative shifted uh, less than half a dozen years ago in the U.S. to the notion of energy dominance, right? That's what they're talking about, energy dominance from a global perspective. Ten years ago, we were talking peak oil and energy dependency, and now we're talking about energy This is, you know, when we talk about disruption in an industry, I mean, this is massive disruption in terms of the global oil supply chains are just shifting.
0: Well, and here's another stunning fact. You know, we've always talked about Saudi's giant Gawar field as the largest oil-producing field in the world. It was often thought to produce near 5 million barrels a day. But Saudi did a big reveal about their company, and they revealed that this large oil field is only producing 3.8 million barrels a day. And so that means the Permian is the world's largest oil producing play. It has now got the crown away from Saudi Arabia. It's growing and just shows you the size and and the magnitude of of the Permian oil. So you
1: were there, boots on the ground. And give us a sense of the size. I mean, it's uh, the size of, what, Washington State? Yeah. So
0: the play itself, you know, if you look at a map of Texas and you sort of see an outline of the Permian, it doesn't look very big, but we have to remember that Texas is such a massive state. Yeah. So the actual Permian, if you look at the area, it is about the size of Washington state. The vast majority, 80% of it is in Texas, but uh, 20% or so is in New Mexico, but not much production today comes from New Mexico, less than 200,000 barrels a day. So the vast mm-hmm. majority is in Texas. Mm-hmm.
1: And to think, about it that makes it so prolific is not just the reservoir, we'll call it the asset quality of what's beneath the ground, but above the ground, you already described that it's basically a flat pancake-like desert. So the ability to apply manufacturing-style techniques without any seasonality, such as we have here in Canada, is amazing.
0: Yeah, and I think I didn't really appreciate that until I got out there and I had the fortune to tour a fracking operation, a drilling operation, and just drive around quite a lot. First of all, it's just flat. There's very little rain. And so it makes construction of roads, pipelines, and well pads pretty much trouble-free year-round. You know, compare that to northern Alberta where spring thawing and often a lot of rain in the fall is quite disruptive to construction and operations. So it has a huge advantage that way. And another advantage is the land does not provide much for competing uses. And I, I did see a few cows, um, It is, <laughs> but they are really not very many. And I was told that because the land is so unproductive, you can't have very many cattle over a large area. There just isn't enough vegetation there to feed them. I did see a few irrigated areas, but really a very small part of, of what the land is used for there. So when you don't have competing land uses, there's a lot less friction uh, in terms of development and issues.
1: So you're going to put some pictures up.
0: Yeah, I have some pictures. And, you know, you're going to see pictures with a lot of vertical pump jacks. So you do see a high density of older wells when you drive around. They're everywhere. But to put it in perspective, only about 500,000 barrels a day of that 4.2 million barrels a day is coming from these older pump jacks. So Mm -hmm. although there's a lot Mm -hmm. of them, not a lot of production. But you do, when you drive around, see these groups of Five to 10 wells. It's often five wells close together, five pump jacks, and not too far away, five more. That seems hmm. to be the standard thing people are doing. So you might have a group of 10, and those are all, you know, horizontal wells that are going out, I was told, you know, generally two miles, but some are pushing out as far as four miles now. So under somebody's um,
1: backyard. I mean, these things are also next to residential areas, right?
0: Well, yeah, when you get into Odessa and Midland, yes, you start to see the pump jacks, you know, really around the community. But, you know, the vast majority of, of the plays are obviously away from the cities. But yes, in the neighborhoods and stuff like that, there's definitely a lot of oil development. I kind of thought about it thinking, you know, we have this saying here that people have an attitude of not in my backyard. Well, that hasn't arrived uh, in West Texas yet. You really see oil wells in close proximity to people's homes and businesses. Sometimes I saw they put like plastic covers around the drilling rig if it's close to a community that they're drilling at. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most people that I talked to said, you know, generally they're supportive of the industry because it's a one economy town and everyone understands if there's no oil industry, there isn't a lot going on there. And I think it also helps that some of the uh, surface right owners, you know, also own, the resource oh, yeah. under their yeah. feet. Yeah. And yeah. So, so when there's a drilling rig, it means they might profit from that yeah. by so actually collecting uh, some uh, revenue.
1: The mentality is more, please, in my backyard, you know, because of the incentives that are there. And, and that's just the way it is. And I mean, you know, we good, bad, indifferent, whatever you may th- think about that, but it helps us understand this incredible production growth, this, this renaissance that has happened in a place that just seems to have all the right chemistry, Below ground, the assets are prolific. Above ground, it's conducive to resource development. Not a lot of civilization, not a lot of weather impediments or topographical impediments. And also the fiscal system that's in place to reward landowners to say, please drill it in my backyard so I too can be a part of this. So it's got all the secret sauce that allows the place to be so prolific.
0: There's a couple other things too. One thing is the domestic sand. Over the last couple of years, Producers have switched from relying on white sand that was transported all the way from Wisconsin to now mostly using local domestic sand, which which is just like sand that's available in the desert and actually fairly close to the operation. So this is sand for the... For the fracking. For, this, for yeah. the hydraulic fracturing, Yeah, so right. you need loads and you know unit trains of sand to uh, support these pad developments. And so what they've done now, instead of taking this expensive sand from a long ways away, one of the other advantages they have locally is they have a lot of sand that is suitable for fracking, and they're just using their local sand. So mm. that is saving a lot of money. And another thing they have under their feet, which is really interesting, is caliche. Uh, so I learned about this caliche stuff.
1: What does that mean? So this
0: is like a locally available natural cement and it's an amazing road building material that's found locally. They have pits that they just, you know, get it out of the ground. It's the cement of calcium carbonate and basically binds together gravel, clay, and silt. And so, you know, some of the pads I visited, you know, it's almost like you're walking on concrete because they have this local caliche stuff that they build the pads out of, which is a low cost material. makes a really hard pad and it's pretty easy to get heavy machinery and equipment onto these pads. So I kept some of that caliche on my work boots for good luck because it's pretty cool <laughs> stuff
1: that yeah. i hadn't seen before. Wow. So i mean it, it sort of calls into question what is the future potential of the Permian. I have these visions from the what your your photos and what you're describing as uh, you know the corner diner on the side of a dusty street where they're talking about all this stuff. Like what's what's the buzz on the oil fields and the the cafes in terms of where this is going?
0: Well, you know, I was lucky enough to get to go to the Midland Petroleum Club for coffee and and talk to a number of locals. Wow, the MPC, the MPC. I know, you know, and it's bigger than Calgary's just for the record.
1: Well, that's hard to believe, but uh, (laughs) everything's bigger in Texas, But it's not
0: connected by plus-15s. So, you know, we have that going for us. Of course, in Midland, you probably don't need that quite as bad as you do in Calgary. Okay, so, yeah, you know, there are concerns and constraints, right? You listen to a lot of analysts that talk about, you know, water could be a constraint, people, labor, you know, so you know, I really wanted to understand people's perspectives on, are these constraints real or not? You know, because there's always been a lot of naysayers about the Permian. No, it can't grow as much as people are projecting and so far, it tends to Grow more than people think.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, with the conditions that are all there, it seems to me that the more bullish side of the argument is the one to be more believing of.
0: Yeah. Well, what I was told at the Petroleum Club is there's no problem in the Permian that higher prices can't fix. And so far, there's, you know, my view is there's no problems that even lower oil prices don't seem to be able to fix. But let's talk about some of the issues. Water. For fracking water, the use of produced water is becoming more common.
1: So that's like putting the water down the hole to frack with the sand. Yes, yeah, so you a need slurry, a lot of water. And then the water comes back up along with the hydrocarbons, and then you you reuse that water.
0: Well, actually, what they're doing more is actually using the produced water from the existing production producing mm-hmm. wells. So I didn't realize that the water cuts in the Permian are actually fairly high, like more than 50% of the fluids coming out of a producing so well. clarify
1: that for the listeners. When you produce oil, in instance, you don't just get oil, you also get water that is deep underground in the reservoir. It's
0: coming from the same reservoir as the oil. Right. And so what they're doing now, more, more than half of the fluid coming out of these wells is water and so they're just using that more and more to frack. We're doing the same thing in Canada as well, using more produced water so to frack So instead of taking with. the
1: water out of a river or some other...
0: Or groundwater or that, ground could, water. that could be potable uh, right. water, you're right. using water that was already in the oil field that isn't suitable for drinking and there's a vast supply if you can think about 4.2 million barrels a day of crude oil, Mm. you know, you've got as much more than that in water being produced. And so the view is that, yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more, but there's lots of water and operators are finding that they can successfully Mm -hmm. frack with this produced water. And so, you know, the other thing is they are able to use temporary pipes laid out on the ground for moving water from the storage areas to the well sites. And as you drive around, you see a lot of these kind of black temporary pipes moving the water. So it's happening. They're moving the water around to the different sites. They're starting to use more produced water. So that didn't seem to be a major concern in terms of constraining growth, at least from the folks I talked to.
1: Mm -hmm. What about underground, like below ground? The notion that, you know, all the good plays are being drilled up very quickly, and therefore there is a limit to the amount of below ground resource that can be brought up and turned into usable production?
0: Well, you know, that definitely is a topic, and we talked about it actually on our Sierra Week podcast. There's a debate, you know, for sure around that. Uh, There's no doubt as you get your well space. Tighter, you're going to get maybe lower rates, but there's also these other innovations that could offset that and the increased of the oil recovery rate. For example, better understanding the drive. Think about the majors. One major change that's talked about there is just how the majors are coming to town. You got Shell, Exxon, BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips. If you actually just look at those five names alone they're planning to grow by 1.5 million barrels a day over the next several years. And they're building office buildings and making, uh, you can see their impact in Midland there. And so the idea is, well, could these players bring their R&D and more sophistication, greater scale, and some of that offset the effects of maybe less uh, quality resource as well as maybe the well spacing issue?
1: Well, I think the answer to that question is yes, they will bring more sophistication. And the more wells they drill, the more they go down the learning curve and the costs go down and the ability to, quote, manufacture the oil production out of this region goes up. And so I think that there is a lot more potential here than people think without even being an expert on the geology and so on. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. So talk about some of the constraints, though. I mean, you just can't keep growing ad infinitum, This production, you got to be able to take it away with pipelines and presumably there are other environmental social constraints potentially. Like what are are the constraints? Yeah,
0: I think some of the other constraints is obviously takeaway capacity, which we can talk about, and then labor, workers. Hmm. You know, we've experienced the boom rush of the oil sands uh, in the last 10 years. So a lot of the same issues that we experienced, I heard there. And then also, uh, you know, just traffic congestion and all that sort of things that come with the boomtown, higher property prices. But let's talk about the takeaway. First of all, their oil takeaway capacity is tight right now, but they have pipelines coming by the end of the year. A lot of confidence that those will be coming. So I just don't see that as huge of a barrier here within Texas as maybe what we see in, in other jurisdictions.
1: So those pipelines will go from West Texas down to Houston into the Ship Channel and then for export?
0: Yeah, a lot of the additional growth out of the Permian will be going towards export. And there's big work going on right now to build more export facilities as well. But the reality is the U.S. refining infrastructure can't really handle much more of that type of crude. And so, yeah, most of this export capacity is going to go out through Texas and and eventually get exported. compete
1: with other global suppliers of this kind of basically light oils, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, light oils, which are in demand globally. You know, it's just the U.S. refining industry can't take as many, but globally there's a lot of capacity to take light crudes. The natural gas is another issue because there's a lot of gas associated with the oil production, and there hasn't been enough infrastructure built to take the gas away. But that is coming as well. I did see some flaring, but again, there are pipes coming Let's talk about another constraint, which is the labor. Local workers are definitely hard to find in a boomtown, so could that constrain the growth of the Permian, you know, access to people? So, you know, definitely... Talking to folks, there are issues with people moving to their competitors for increasing pay, something that happens when labor is in short supply. Oh, sure. We saw that in
1: Fort McMurray uh, half a dozen years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, And there's a lot of concerns around, you know, don't go to the restaurants because the service is so poor because you can't (laughs) get people working in the restaurant. And they were telling me it's shocking. People are getting paid $16 or $17 per hour to wait tables. I guess that's a lot in Texas because, you know, <laughs> with our minimum wage being $15, I didn't think that sounded too bad. But I did look it up in Texas. The minimum wage is $7 an hour. So that is pretty high. But the reality is it's hard to for people to live in— Midland or Odessa, if they're not making that kind of money, because the apartments are very expensive. There's issues with school teachers, because school teachers don't get paid enough to really afford the cost of living now in these places. So they have some of those pressures, same pressures we experienced. Yeah,
1: we saw that movie here. I mean, it's not a healthy social dynamic. But the United States has 10 times as many people as Canada and is mobile. And so they are able to fill in the labor pools.
0: Well, and that's the thing, like what helped Alberta through that period, mm. is we started building camps. Therefore, you just brought the people into work and they didn't necessarily uh, require more schools or or pay for local accommodations. And so you're seeing that big time in the Permian. Around the major cities of Odessa Midland, there are work camps popping up everywhere. And it's so much easier than in Canada because they don't need to you know be good for winter season, right? So in some cases, it's just people have brought in all these trailers, even, like, mm-hmm. travel trailers, and that's a work camp.
1: But it does get um, hot down there. It does
0: get hot. Well, really? But, you know, it, I think the the ability to build these work camps, people like entrepreneurs that have land have just sort of, you know, put some caliche down, uh, <laughs> got some travel trailers, and there you go. There's a work camp. Uh, the other interesting thing is they're not even called work camps. They're called man camps there. So gender diversity has not come <laughs> yet to the Permian. They're wow. man camps.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, well, whatever you want to call the camps, they're being filled up with laborers, and not all those laborers are American. They're coming from Canada, too.
0: Well, you know, the one thing I learned is that, uh, first of all, they seem to be showing up, even though the U.S. has very tight unemployment rates. And it's because with the downturn, especially in the last quarter where oil prices fell so hard at the end of 2018, some of those other oil-producing areas people aren't so busy there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those people are showing up. But then the other thing is the same thing's happening here in Canada. As you know, our activity levels are about a third down from the same time last year. And so you're starting to see more Canadian companies operate in the Permian. In fact, when when I got to the airport, you know, the airport's kind of interesting because when you arrive... There's a lot of adverts and posters and things up, but they're all to do with oil field services. But one of the first things I saw coming out of the airport was Step Energy Services, who operates coiled tubing services in the Permian. That's a Canadian company. Yeah, it's a Canadian company. And so it was great to see a smiling face. They were actually had a advert saying, you know, uh-huh. we're looking to hire people in the Permian. When the reality is that more and more Canadian companies and Canadians are making their way to Permian and Texas. It's kind of a sad reality in some ways that we're losing people as well as equipment to the Permian.
1: Yeah, no, it's not comforting as a Canadian for sure, but it is a competitive reality. And I think the importance of your trip to go down there and see firsthand is to get a real on-the-ground feel for competitiveness. Right, because mm-hmm. this is the reality of the world. Not only is the U.S. competing with Canada, uh, it's competing with other jurisdictions in the world. And you know, MBA one hundred and one, know your competition. And well, and we got to understand it.
0: It's creating opportunity for Canadian companies. You know, equipment's moving. Uh, if you look, there's been a number of announcements, like Akita drilling, moving rigs from Alberta to the Permian. In a CBC article, they were quoted as saying that their customers are so eager in West Texas to have their rigs that they are willing to pay relocation. And other rig companies as well like have moved, including Trinidad uh-huh. drilling. And so we're seeing these... So West Texas customers start to uh, give jobs for Canadians as well as their equipment. And so, I mean, it's an opportunity for some sure, of those companies to sure. continue to grow into I, Texas. You know, I,
1: I'm old enough and been around the energy business long enough to know. I mean, I've seen this movie before, too. We've seen in the 1980s, Canadian companies migrate to the United States and then things happen competitively and things change. Technology changes and They come back. So, you know, I I don't want to leave our listeners with the view that, okay, it's all over. Canada can't compete. We know we can compete. We know we've got the big issues, uh, the elephants in the room, so to speak, which we've talked on our prior podcasts. But, you know, having said that, it does necessitate what we've also talked about. Again, I'll come back to it, that you've got to have that competitive mindset.
0: Yeah, because you're not just competing against your neighbor in uh, northern Alberta here. You're competing against these operators in the Permian.
1: Yeah. So what is uh, what is the upshot?
0: Well, you know, I think when I think about it, things are really changing, obviously, in the Permian. This incredible growth, but most of the growth has been led by the local companies like Pioneer, Concho, Diamondback, Endeavor Energy. These are mm-hmm. names I got familiar with uh, as people talk about them a lot when you're down there. But now there's this major shift happening. The Permian used to actually have the majors in it, like Chevron, Exxon, and BP long ago were in the Permian. Now they're coming back in a big way. As I said, the top five could grow by 1.5 million barrels a day over the next several years just based on what they've put out publicly. Plus, there's others, that I'm not even counting, like Devon, Occidental, EOG, that are really well, active in the Permian. Well,
1: before we wrap up, I mean, you know, we've seen that movie before too and everybody comes piling into an area. I mean, it just drives the costs of land, the cost of services, the cost of labor, everything goes up, doesn't it? Well,
0: it could. I think the ability to bring in labor, these pop-up work camps, uh... Man camps. Man camps, of course. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I just think the majors could also bring a lot of discipline in terms of the scale and their ability to push down costs. Of course, there will be some constraints, but there's definitely room for some capacity growth there Mm -hmm. as well. I also think something different about the majors is they're not dependent on local cash flow to grow. They may be funding their growth from other operations. For example, Devin's talking about selling the oil sands. Well, that cash could then go into growing the Permian. So unlike some of these local producers that are dependent more now on their cash flow for growth, we could actually have the capital needed to grow at a bit faster pace. So there's lots of open questions and unknowns for sure. But if I look at recent history, it's shown not to bet against West Texas. And my wager after visiting and learning more about the advantages they have is the Permian's likely to grow for some time to come.
1: Yeah, I think it is too. And and by the way, I think this is actually more of a threat to other global producers that produce the lighter oils. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, yeah, you know, notwithstanding the comments that I already made about know your competitor, know it well. But a lot of the Canadian oil that goes to the United States is a heavier grade. And what's in the Permian is a lighter. And that lighter stuff is going to be going out into the global markets through the Gulf of Mexico, competing with other global players, not necessarily with Canada.
0: Right. Most of the production growth from Canada will be the heavy that's needed on the Gulf Coast. And, and those refineries are short, heavy, especially with Venezuela falling off. And, and mm-hmm. so that's not changing the market opportunity for Canada in Texas mm-hmm. when it comes to selling our crude oil.
1: Mm-hmm. But we yeah. do compete for labor, capital, capital investment and other things. And we need to understand that dynamic. Well, thanks very much, Jackie, for that on the ground view of what we've seen in Texas. Until next time, thanks for listening to another edition of Arc Energy Ideas podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on your app and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.